You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is a Hesped Harocha for Rav Moshe Yosef Khan, Rav Moshe Yosef, and Chaim Michal. Uh, when I heard his Ptira and I read the tributes that were starting to flood in on all sorts of areas, social media and other sites, I realized that I had, we had an achrayas to use our forum to be maskir l'shevach, to give a sense of the sheer koima of this incredible person, this person who was a Rebbe, as uh, one of his uh, students and colleagues said, Rabban shall call Yisrael, in so many ways. Um, I wanted to, uh, and we were able to get Baruch Hashem in a very quick amount of time, a number of wonderful persons, colleagues, and Talmidim, Talmidot, who were interested in being Mishtatif. Um, the way it's going to work here, we, we're going to start with the Rosh Hashiva and the Mashkiach Ruchni, senior Mashkiach Ruchni of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Yosef Blau. Rabbi Blau will be uh, followed by um, one of Rabbi Khan's uh, Talmidot, uh, Shohevet Kahana, uh, who will, after her presentation, which I understand will also involve a actual uh, a, a PowerPoint. Uh, we're going to hear from a, a mother and daughter together, Hanaleya uh, um, and her mother, uh, Mora uh, Deborah Clapper, uh, who were students of Rabbi Khan, Chavrusas themselves. Um, and after that, we will hear from Rav Arye Clapper, uh, Mora Tvora's husband, and Hanaleya's father, who will also give us a, a sense of uh, Rabbi Khan's approach uh, based on Torah that Rabbi Khan uh, published. Thank you. Uh, Rabbi Khan was probably the most unusual revolutionary that one could imagine. Because in his own mind, all he was doing was teaching Torah, teaching Torah to women teaching them how to learn. He had no ulterior motive. He was not pro or anti-feminist. He was a person teaching Torah to women to enhance their avodah Hashem, period. Let me go back a little bit over his background to give you an idea how he came to this. Rabbi Khan went to YU in 1968 after graduating Shiva High School of Queens, stayed for Smicha, learned many years with the Rav, stayed after Smicha and got a Yodin Yodin, and he was in Yeshiva till 1979. I mean, four years after Smicha, he was still learning. At one point, he described driving the Rav and asking the Rav what the Rav thought about his teaching Torah to women. And the Rav uh, answered, why not? Of course, those of us who go back long enough know that the Rav, perhaps more than anyone else, gave the stamp of approval to teaching Talmud to women. In, in, in Maimonides, I had the pleasure of teaching there. We taught, I taught women as well as men. And the Rav gave the introductory shiur to the Talmud program at Stern. Another very important influence on Rabbi Khan that really clarifies how he taught was the years he spent teaching in JSS under the tutelage of Rabbi Moshe Bezdin Zechonah JSS was the program set up in Yeshiva, started in 1956 really for people without yeshiva background to come and learn on the college level. And Rabbi Bezdin was a master educator, and his 
motto, which everybody got a t-shirt that said the motto, was it and not about it. He understood very well that for young men, 18 years old, who were intelligent, able to master, go to college, but without formal background, the easy way was to teach them about Torah. You know, that someone else will go over the psukim and then they'll discuss the ideas. Similar with Mishnah and, and Talmud. But he understood they will never know how to learn if they're dependent on others and only know about it. So he had to convince them to become the same as six-year-olds and to start from scratch. They learned Chumash with Rashi. They memorized things until they got the skills. And Rabbi Khan understood that a great question for teaching women Talmud at Stern, and we'll discuss in a moment all the places he taught, was that they didn't have the background. They weren't JSS students in the sense that they didn't, they knew how to read Hebrew, knew Chumash, knew Tanakh, but they had never been exposed to a Daf Gemara. They didn't know the Tzuras had Daf. They didn't know the vocabulary, so they didn't know the Aramaic words. And he was adamant that he's going to teach them how to learn Gemara, how to read the Gemara in in, inside, how to fit every word in, and not just get a vague knowledge. And that was the key to the methodology that he applied. Rabbi Khan taught in Stern for 40 years. When they started the GPATS program, he taught there for 22 years. And he simultaneously, for the first for 30 years, taught in Drishah, which meant if we think of any formal Torah education in Torah Shabbat Peh that took place post-high school, it's Rabbi Khan. There were not, I cannot think of many other, any others. Much later, they started uh, a small part of the Oetzit program in America, but many of those students had been students of his beforehand anyway. So he was the primary source of learning of Gemara. He also, and we shouldn't neglect this as well, he taught halacha in a very sophisticated, sophisticated manner, not just dinim, Yes, no, kosher treif, but basing on makoros, understanding the reasoning behind the halacha, and and seeing it in the fullest context. This again goes. This goes back to the influence of the rav. I recall when I was in my when I was in Maimonides, the rav was very adamant that of teaching mesechtas of gemara that were practical and dealt with halacha l'masa. Not so much for the Gemara part, but for the halacha l'masa part. That people should understand that the halacha isn't just arbitrary, and it's rooted in the Gemara. Strikingly, in this case, Rabbi Khan did the opposite. Rabbi Khan taught the most complex and difficult parts of, of Nashim and Nezikim because he was making the critical point, women can do it. Women don't have to learn things that are less demanding. If they put their attention to it, they can learn on the, on the most difficult and complex gemaros. As I mentioned, Rabbi Khan was not a revolutionary. He didn't have a, an ideology. He was teaching Torah. And he had to face a very interesting challenge in his teaching at Stern. He was, except for elementary Talmud, which was very introductory, he was the Talmud department, which meant that if someone wanted to learn what they called advanced Gemara, 
you taught intermediate as well. If you want to learn advanced Gemara, you went to Rabbi Khan. And if you wanted to take him the next year, you went to Rabbi Khan. And the third year, you went to Rabbi Khan. And many in GPATs, they stay with Rabbi Khan. Which meant he had to find a way of teaching a class where those students who were new to what he had to teach would benefit, and the students who had been in his class already for two years would be growing as well. It was quite an educational challenge to meet the needs of different elements. As a teacher, on one hand, he was demanding, but on the other hand, he was extremely supportive. There's a beautiful piece, I suggest people reading it, in a commentator written by a young student who's a junior now in Stern, had just been in his class for the last year and a half, who describes how she was going to drop out of the class because it was she thought she didn't know enough. Remember, she was competing with people who had been in the class a year or two before. And she spoke to Rabbi Khan. And Rabbi Khan found a way of encouraging her and making her feel that she could do it. She can succeed. And that was a critical part of his personality. He encouraged his students to succeed. Not by by lowering standards, but by giving them support and encouragement while demanding standards. It's, I think one can say that he is more responsible for women knowing Torah Shabbat in America and numerous people who subsequently met in Aliyah, including people who've been teaching in seminaries in Israel, who are his students. Because he didn't start a school and because he never promoted himself, he was a very humble, modest, soft-spoken individual. People didn't even know who he was. I happened to have been in Israel at the time of the Siyam HaShas, and there was in Binyan Eha a massive gathering of women, including many women who had met a Siyam themselves. And Rabbi Khan wasn't there. He wasn't, I don't recall his being mentioned. He was one. He wasn't. Didn't found anything. He didn't promote um, learning Dafyomi. But he was there because all these people had learned how to learn from him, and his knowing how to learn was not the modern world of art scroll. You look up the English, but you go into the text of the Gemara and you learn it, and you get to understand what how Chazal understood things and you grow in learning. And hopefully it will be a commitment that people will take with themselves far in the future when they graduate. When in the years, last recent years of GPATs, there were two different shurim. He gave one and Dovi Nachbi Bad Lachaim gave the other. Rabbi Khan welcomed having a second person. And the fact that someone else would give a different style of shear, he wasn't threatened. He did everything he could to make Rabbi Nachbar comfortable, to aid him in working with him. He was a very generous person. He didn't want things only for himself. He wanted to help others. In that vein, it's interesting that in his later years, he studied and became a psychoanalyst because he cared about people. He wanted to understand people. He wanted to help people. So he really was a most remarkable individual. I'm thrilled that he's being recognized properly because since he didn't assert himself and since he'd make grandiose claims about anything, easily people could have just taken him for granted. And I don't think he wanted to get big publicity, but it's important, Ramana Emes, for the truth, that all those who benefited from him be given an opportunity to express it. 
I'm fascinated by the fact that instead of a Siyam Mishnayas for the Shloshim, there's an ambitious attempt of a Siyam Hashas. Even though there's still another 20% left to go, 337 people have signed up. Would they learn one blot or 10 blot? And there are men in the list, but I would suspect that 300 of them, I didn't count, it's a lot of people to count, that at least 300 of them are women who learned from him and are going to learn at least one blot Gemara in his memory. That's a remarkable tribute. Yehei Zichro Baruch. Our next speaker, uh, uh, Mrs. Shalheldit Kahana, um, and she is going to uh, present uh, her a tribute to Rav Khan, and I know it's going to take part with a, a PowerPoint. I'll share a few words about my Rebbe, Rav Moshe Khan. And I thought I'd open with a few photos to help share his story, and then, of course, a little Torah that he taught me. This is a photo of my Rebbe, Rav Moshe Khan. Rav Khan, you'll notice when he was in the Beit Midrash learning in Stern College, he always had at least three scholars before him. His focus was always very sharp. It, although he was always available to answer questions for, for us, the truth is he was really more interested that we discover the complexity of the, of the Torah on our own. And, he, and when we saw him role modeling for us how to learn, it inspired us to take our learning very seriously. Rav Khan, as Rabbi Blau mentioned, first taught uh, at Yeshiva University, Rav Khan was a Musmach of Rav and had taught at, in the JSS program at Yeshiva University for 11 years. And it was only after uh, Rav Willig um, and other Rabbanim wanted to spend more time uptown, the question was who would take over the women's shear in Stern College. And so eventually, Rav Khan, you'll see in this um, photo, and this photo collage from the 1980 Yeshiva University school yearbook that people considered our Rebbe, Rav Khan, to be on a very special caliber. You'll notice here they put the Rav, Rav Salavichik, on top, and then pictures of what they called the Rebbe, or we called Rav Khan, the bottom of the page. But he was brought over to Stern College in the early 1980s. And in his quiet, unassuming, humble way, day after day, he taught Shir. That's who he was. He was a Rebbe. And you'll notice that in the Stern College Beit Midrash, this is a photo from the Stern Beit Midrash, it's actually the largest women's Beit Midrash in North America. And you'll see it has, the walls are lined with literally thousands of sparim. But when it came to Rav Khan, you see his shear was always small. You look at the table, this table only has six women there. It wasn't big because Rav Khan made a daring choice. Rav Khan was interested in teaching only the strongest, most ambitious, most committed students. Rav Khan was not interested in being well-liked. He wasn't interested in the faculty award. He, wa he wanted students who were ready to learn. And so it was, there was a bit of like anxiety and trepidation. Am I ready to take Rav Khan's here? Um, but Rav Khan was certain that if he taught at a high level, that's exactly where the Talmudot would meet him. And as such, over the decades, over the many decades, the Talmudot of Rav Khan have come out now in droves with Hasidim and tributes and wanting to learn Torah in his memory. That's, that's really over the span of many decades. That at each and every time, every, each and every year he would teach, it was always a small chavra of students who were really there to learn and really support each other. And you'll see that we took, he expected the world from us and we in turn expected the world of ourselves. As we got ready for Bechinas and Rav Khan's classes, we just planted ourselves in the base medrash. And these are just two of a gajillion photos I could have shared. And you see that we were so careful to write out every single detail because Rav Khan demanded that we know the meaning of every single word. You had to not just know the word, you had to know the prefix and the suffix. And if in Shir Rav Khan would cold call you, and Rav Khan would then 
And we, we would say, oh, I, I wasn't really sure about that. Rav Khan would say, but why did you, in his gentle voice, it was never tough love, it was always gentle, he'd say, but if you didn't understand the meaning, why did you go further? You had to know every single word because each word of Torah was precious to Rav Khan. Every single word. But as you can tell here, the level of detail that we had in our learning was, was the demand. It was the expectation of Rafkan. Rafkan would tell us, you cannot learn with Amuna, that even though there might be a leap of faith necessary to believe in Hashem for some people, he said, when it comes to learning, you should not learn with Amuna. You should have confidence that because you read each and every word carefully, that you know exactly what the Ra and the Rashba, Tosfos, whoever it is, is, is actually trying to teach you. So you'll see that also on the, on the walls of the base Medrash, when there was a specific mucker that he wanted us to know really well. <laughs> when we were studying for the Bukhinas, we put on the walls of the base Medrash the specific Mohammed that he wanted us to learn. But it was like this for every Bukhina. I, I chose it, I took these photos from and when I was learning a Rabkan's share, but truthfully, it was always like this in Rabkan's share. Something special about Rafkan is that, of course, he was very serious and very thoughtful, but we also knew how to have a little fun with him. And he also took great joy and that we took joy in being his family goat. One year we made, we had, and one year, actually, the truth is in several years, they, they made fun sweatshirts that year, of course, they were going to go to Basra and Shorniga. Uh, there was one time for Adar, when a student, her name is Manucha. Um, decided to do a, do a quote unquote dress up of Rav Khan. Rav Khan evidently would always bring a, a full shot in the Mishnah Torah to share. So what, that when Rav Khan was studying in Rav Salavichik's share, if he ever needed to look something up, he would have it present. So Manucha said, maybe I should do what Rav Khan did, but she made it into a cute other thing. Which is to say that, of course, Rav Khan demanded the highest standards of our learning, but he, we also knew how to have fun with him. We were also able to get back to Rav Khan a little bit. Like Rav Khan in his usual Hasmada, he just took one course every semester so that he could eventually earn a PhD in psychology. And when he eventually earned his PhD, we put on a little party for Rav Khan. When eventually we found out about two years ago that our Rebbe had, uh, had stage four lung cancer, of course, it was a shock to our system. It was very challenging for us to assimilate this news. And we thought, what can we do to give honor to our Rebbe? Our, our Rebbe who taught us how to learn. Our Rebbe who taught us an extraordinary amount of Torah. So some tell me, don't reach out to me and ask me if I would be available and interested in Sefer, of Debre Torah for him. And I didn't have to blink intuitively, automatically, I said yes. And like any project, it always takes more time than you anticipate. And in those long nights where I was reaching out to tell me those who were living all over the world and asking them if they could write a director for our Rebbe, and in the many hours of back and forth emails and editing and compiling, in those long nights, I would motivate myself and say, this is for my Rebbe. And what happened was on a right before Shavuos that year, we surprised Rav Khan and we presented him the Sefer. It was over a Zoom. And at that Zoom, Rav Khan was recognized by the president of Yeshiva University. And this is Nahama Price, the director of the GPAS program, the Advanced Gemara program for women at Stern. And they expressed their extraordinary gratitude to Rav Khan that he was the kind of teacher who was that he wanted us to become lifelong and independent learners. And so we, we then thanked him with profound gratitude, thanking him so much for all of the Torah he taught us. He then taught his own shir, where he was encouraging us. And Rav Khan actually began the shir feeling a little weak. He was coming over a case of laryngitis. But we saw that as Rav Khan was teaching, he became stronger and stronger. Torah is perfect because it restores the soul. At the end of the Zoom, as per normal Zoom etiquette, we expected that we would just say goodbye and leave it at that. 
But what happened next blew me away. When Rakan finished, Talmidah by Talmidah, standing generation after generation, then had the chance to say, Rebbe, thank you so much for the Torah that you've taught us, the, the exacting standards you had to make sure that the Torah we learned would be as strong as it could be. Thank you, Rebbe, for believing in us and always encouraging us. And even if it was just 30 seconds to a minute, Talmidah after Talmidah began saying thank you and expressing their gratitude to our Rebbe. It rendered me speechless. It rendered me speechless to see, wow, this is this is the impact that our Rebbe had. But of course, the Ha'ish Moshe Anav Nikol Adam, both Moshe Rabbeinu and Rav Moshe Khan, was never looking for admiration. He was never looking to be well-liked. He was never looking to receive kavod. And his humility, Rav Khan said, I never realized I made such a difference. Just like in the Haggadah, we can only see Moshe Rabbeinu's name the two ones, and it's only as Eved Hashem. So too for Rav Moshe Khan. Rav Moshe Khan was in the background. That's where he wanted to be. He was never, he was always, he wanted to, never wanted to be on stage for everyone to look at him. He always wanted to guide us and motivate us to discover the meaning of the Gemara. Shall, shall have it. I think uh, the taste, I think, makes us thirst for more. And on, on that note, we have your friend who was a co-editor of uh, that Fetrif, uh, Moshe Emes Vizarosa Emes, uh, Hanalea Clapper and, and her mother, uh, Mora Deborah, who I understand from my friend Rav Aryeh, um, that this, his wife and daughter were Talmidot of uh, Rabbi Khan. I understand I've, that they are going to be presenting together now as sort of a mother and daughter Chavrusa team. So, um, I was in, when I started in Rav Khan Shir um, in um, spring of 2017. Um, when I I transferred into Stern in the spring semester, and I knew that I wanted to be in Rav Khan Shir, but um, I didn't have a Chavrusa. Um, everyone was already matched up. I was the only one starting, and I was kind of nervous to join a did two other Labrusos. Uh, so I asked my mother if she would learn with me. Um, and at that time, it was a little bit of a different video conferencing day, um, but we learned over Skype for years. Um, and I had the privilege to be able to learn from my mother at the same time as I learned from Rabbi Khan. Um, I can't say in all honesty that Rabbi Khan really approved of the arrangement. <laughs> he once told me that my mother was not in, enrolled in his class, but um, it worked out very well. And I think originally he was concerned that, you know, my mother being a, a Talmud teacher herself would maybe um, ease my way too much and I wouldn't get the depth of learning that he wanted us to but um, after the first after the first couple of semesters I think that he really saw that I was putting in the work and he never said anything of the sort again <laughs> I think if he had been aware how completely unsuccessful I was at teaching you he wouldn't have been worried <laughs> he did a much better job than I did <laughs> Um, so today we wanted to, um, in Rufkan's memory, we wanted to teach a um, one of the sources that we learned with Rav Khan. Um, so this was in, I believe, it was in 2019. Um, I don't remember if it was fall or spring, um, but we were learning Ketubot with Rav Khan, um, and uh, we were focusing on um, Adim, um, who signed onto a star, and then um, about the idea that Adim, who sees something when they're young, can then come back and witness it when they're older. Um, so we're starting on the bottom of Ketubos Kafchet Amad Aleph. So the, these are the um, these are the witnesses who are believed to um, say to be to bear witness to um, when they're adults to what they saw when they were younger. Um Adam Lomar, a person is trusted to say, this is the um, handwriting of my father, and this is the handwriting of my Rebbe, this is the handwriting of my brother. Um, so to go to Rashi. Um, 
זה כתב ידו של אבא, ומקיימים השדר על פיו, אף על פי שמת אביו, בעוד זה קטן. אמרתי, קלריפייז, that in this Mishnah, we're not only saying that you can say that um, this is my father's handwriting, I saw it when I was little, I also saw it when I was an adult, and they look the same. You're saying, even though your father died um, while you were still a child, you, we trust you to say, this is what my father's handwriting looked like, even though you never saw it again um, when you were older. Um, so the Mishnah continues to give more examples. Zachor hayiti beploni chayata behinuma verosha parua. So you can say, I remember this woman who came out in this sort of um, pelican, I think. Is that the right word? Yeah. But uh, uh, kind of a chair that um, that uh, the young uh, betrothed woman would go out in. Verosha parua. And her head was covered. Um, and I saw this man go out from school um, to Tobol um, and then um, in order to eat from Truma. Um, and that I was uh, dividing up with him on uh, on the threshing floor. Um, here we would come on Shabbos. Uh, so turning to Rashi, uh, this was um, what they did with betrothed um, virgins, and uh, because uh, to prove that her ketubah should be 200, um, like we said back at the beginning of the parak, um, Rav Khan would be very upset at me, but I'm going to take Rashi's word for it that that is what it said at the beginning of the parak instead of heading back there. Um, when I saw him leave school, but we don't trust him to say this guy had, um, he used to walk through this way. Um, or I stood and gave um, to this guy in this place. Um, so Raji says, um, because this is um, this is about taking money when we're saying that he had that he had this this path. Um, and we need um, the superior edus. We are not just going to let someone say, "I saw when I was little, I saw this guy go this way." So Rashi raises a kind of an implied question. Um, so in that case, why do we allow this this case where he says that he saw the woman go out with her Rosha Perua? Isn't that also about money? We're saying she gets 200 for Ketubah instead of 100. And the answer is because most women are um, virginal when they get married. So we have a Chazaka and we'll believe someone about what they saw as a Katan in that case, even though it's about money and generally we should require it was Malyasa. This is a place where they used to stand and give hasbidim um, on their way to the to the cemetery, um, and there they would they would do and there they would um, do a shiva. Uh, so moving on to the Gemara, Amar of Puna Breda Rav Yoshua, Bahushi Yesh Gadol Imos, or Puna Breda Rav Yoshua says, well, um, if, well, okay, so we believe him as, we believe him as an aide, but we believe him as one out of two aide, and we don't just, we wouldn't just take his word. He, there are three different people whose uh, signatories he can recognize, and this is why we need to list all three of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So going back to the Mishnah, we need the entire list. Because if the Mishnah just taught us his father, because, well, his, it's his father. He'll recognize his father's handwriting. Um, Rashi says, because it's, you know, we believe that obviously at some point in his childhood, he's going to have seen the handwriting of his father. But his Rebbe, maybe he never saw his Rebbe's handwriting. Um, um, and if we just said a Rebbe, we would say, well, it, it, he's terrified of his Rebbe. Of course, he remembers what his Rebbe's handwriting looked like when he got his Bethina back and his Rebbe wrote all these mean comments on it. But um, his father, why would he remember his father's handwriting? His father probably only wrote him nice notes. Um, uh, another implied question if we said both Rebbe and his Abba um, wouldn't those two be enough why do we need the rest of this list um, for the reasons that we just listed 
but um but his brother we wouldn't we wouldn't know that then in the mishnah because he doesn't have any particular reason to have um to have either seen his brother stand running and we don't think he's particularly scared of his brother um um you would say well it's just his father and his rebbe not his brother kamash uh, kamash um so so we learned that um we learned that we need all of the list because of any of these specific things it's just an arbitrary thing that Chazal made up this din, so they made up the rules to go with it, and they listed. Oh, I see. Okay, so we're still we're going back to the original question of what's the reason we listed all these things, and the answer is there isn't really a defining characteristic. Chazal just decided. Chazal invented the idea of being Mikhail Mishar, so then so and the, these are the areas where they decided to be Mikhail about it. Yeah, because normally oh, Adis, normally Adis, um, you would expect to be in a different situation. Here they're being made. And what they saw when they were younger. Normally, Adis is on an event that you see, and it's Mamish Bafanovs. That's what the Gemara is saying, that these are all coolers in, in, in the Adis that's necessary for Kim Stars. That's what I think it makes. But go ahead. Um, okay. Right. Thank you. So, granted, right. but the I think the reason that the we're able to conclude this thing about Kim Stars is because they're not all for the same reason. So it seems like a an arbitrary list of exceptions. And so we learn from that that Chazal can do whatever they want because it's their own din. Yeah, that came, the requirement of Kim Staros is only Midira Banan, Midira Raisa. If you have a star and it has two signatures on it, you would just believe it without any further attempt to validate it. So Rashi says to Midor Raisa, inan kiyo, uh, that uh, from Midor Raisa, you don't require any sort of validation. The Amar Reish Lakish, the Elk Tubos because Reish Lakish says um, earlier, earlier uh, 10 blot up, Aidim Hakatimi Malastar, Nasekimishinil Karai Dutan Bebejin, that um, when an aid signs onto a star, it's like that it was, uh, it w- went through this process in Bejin of being uh, checked out and uh, and um, all the necessary questions were asked. Um, so Rashi says, what, what, what's the Gemara telling us at the end? That the, that the Rabbanan are able to um, repeal this, to, uh, to allow for this lesser adus on the star in these cases, because it came stars with only a Durabanan requirement in the first place. So now the, they can, uh, they can repeal that whenever they, in whatever circumstances they want. Um, and this isn't, uh, challenging anything in the Torah. Heim amru, heim amru. Um, the Rabbanim said this and the Rabbanim said that. Heim shrithu kiyama adus. They required this, uh, validation to begin with. Heim elshirubo at elu. And they said, well, in this case, we don't really need so much validation. Um, so Tosvot says, Tosvot says, Tema, this is a very surprising concept that Kim Shara sister at Banan, Kevan Demidio Raisa, Filu in Edim Shia, Kiru, Hatimas, Edim Hashtar, Kasher, Imkane, Koladam Shirta, Yuzai, Fil Tovi, Tomashi, Yuzav, Yigba, Mimet, Yigba, Mimet. So Tosvot says in a very long run on sentence, um, this is shocking to me that, um, that um, the Gemara would say this because. Since if since um, if this were true that Del Raisa, even if the no Adim um, who recognized the handwriting came forward, we would just say, okay, the star looks good. You have a contract. There's signatures on it. I guess this land or this money or whatever we're talking about is yours. If that so, Tosfat says, anyone who wants um, could just forge any star they wanted and they you know write two signatures that look a little different on the bottom and they could go and collect whatever money they wanted or take whatever land they wanted the, the entire legal system would collapse if this were true to us what it says um or do, do, that can't be true that do rice that would be a lab so um tell us what it says the haka omer read the ikila may mark you going to love and motor shakat bova towing to put rub a cassava high tina de motor bestar shakasbo to rethle mo so it tells us the quotes the re here that there's um you know kimta we the re says well when the gemara says this it's not saying generally kim stars is there a bun on it's in this one specific situations it's possible to say that for example 
the Lova, the um, borrower, admitted in this case that the uh, star was written in his handwriting, and the borrower would be the one to write the star, um, or get it written by a scribe. Um, and he said, you know, yeah, the star is mine. I admit that I had this star made, and I really did borrow the money, but I paid it already. Um, so in this case, the Loba has uh, what's called amigo. He says the star is mine, but I but I paid it already when he could have just said this star um, was never mine to be with. I don't know what you're talking about. So since if he'd wanted to lie, he could have lied much more effectively. We say it seems like he's probably telling the truth. So in this case, the Tana behind this Mishnah, maybe he thinks that even in this case where the Lova has this Migo, he still we still um we still need yeah, we still need to do Kyum Staros. Um have a And that Kyum would be uh, that in that situation, the Kyum would be only Durabana. Um, so Tosbud now refers us um, a little further down um, to uh, which again, Rif Khan would definitely want us to jump over there, but in the interest of time, I'll summarize. Um, in that Gemara, we in that Gemara, uh, the Gemara, the, the uh, position that one of the ways in which you can do Pium Staros is not necessarily to find other Adim who recognize it. Instead, you can compare the star to previous stars. Let's say a year ago, you, a different star signed by the same two Adim went through Pium. Now we have a validated star and we can just compare the handwriting and say, yeah, the Looks like Plony signed this one too. So the the Gemara there says you can do this, but only if you have two stars that have already been Mikuyam. You can't do it with just one star. You need to have two already validated stars to compare the handwriting of these Adim to. Um, and also it needs to be that there's someone else's because we don't want the situation to be that one borrower has been forging or um, one lender really would be the one forging it. Um, one, one lender has been forging stars for years and he managed to get two through Baitin. And now anytime someone complains, he says, look, compare these to the ones that already made it through Baitin and he can just claim whatever money he wants. Um, so we, we would worry if that if it that, uh, were the case, if there was only one star to compare it to, or if it was by the same lender, we would be concerned that it was a forgery. Umihu Barish gets in, but Tosfot says this kind of all falls apart. Um, the Riz theory, um, because at the beginning of Masachet Gitin, Mulchach is proven. Um, that even where no one comes forward and recognizes the signature whatsoever, there's just no evidence that the signature is in any way um, true. Even so, it's like this um, star, these Aiden went to Beijing and they were checked out, and now we know that the star is kosher. Um, I don't know why Tosfot chose a different Gemara than Rachi, but uh, the Gemara he cites just has the same statement from Rish Lakish that a star Doraisa is valid. Um, and I personally love this Tosfot because he goes through the entire beginning just to throw the whole thing out because he thinks he has a really good theory and he wants to put it out into the world. Um, I think we need at some point here to say the words, the star speaks for itself. Khan did like thinking words. about stars speaking. Uh, did you have a Rabbi Khan's story you wanted to tell, sweetheart? Uh, I mean, I have many Rav Khan stories. Uh, Rav Khan was my Rebbe for five years. Um, I think... Um, at this point, you know, I have many stories from Cher. I think she'll have it really covered very well what it felt like to be in his Cher. So um, what I want to share is more the personal relationship that I had with Rev Khan. Um, I actually, I went from his Cher to law school. Um, and um, over, I had winter break a few years, a few weeks ago. Um, and I, the way law school works is it takes several weeks to get your grades back after you take the exams and your entire grade depends on the exam. So I was feeling very anxious. I had no idea how I had done. And I called Rav Khan and I said, Rav Khan, I feel very, I feel very anxious about these exams. I don't know whether my grades are going to be any good. And he said, Khana, everything you touch turns to gold. 
And I said, Rafkan, I just realized that you were the only teacher that I really need to impress and need to impress. And he said, well, you did impress me. And he was the sweetest, kindest man who was always there for his students when he needed them. He was a wonderful teacher. He could be strict in his teaching. Um, he could be a harsh grader, but he really truly cared about each and every one of his students. And even a year and a half after I had been in cheer with him, he, when he was going through an incredibly difficult time by himself, he was there. All he wanted to talk about was me. All he wanted to do was make sure that I was okay. Thank you. I, I wanted to share that I've been, spent the last week thinking about my experience in Rabbi Khan's class. I was in his class a long, long time before you were. Um, I graduated from the scholarship program when I was pregnant with you. So it was a long time ago. But, and the thing that sticks out is I think he may be the only teacher of Torah whose class I ever learned in, who I don't remember fighting with. Um, because if you said, well, actually, you know, I think that this idea is better than that idea or whatever, you, you didn't agree with him. As long as you weren't making a mistake in some sort of, you know, obvious vocabulary way, that was okay with him. You didn't have to agree with him. Unlike um, <laughs> lots of other teachers whose classrooms I sat in. Um, and that's very precious to me that, that like Rabbi Blau said, he was interested in moving out of the way to let the students think for themselves. Um, and it, it wasn't, there didn't need to be room in the classroom for his ego because he didn't really bring his ego with him. See, what I, it, one of the main things I owe gratitude to Khan for, uh, that this culture that we just shared for the last half hour was, you know, my house was full of it for uh, for you know, for years, and uh, in general, I owe enormous thanks to Rav Khan both uh, for uh, for my wife's learning and especially for Khanalea's learning and for being oh, just a wonderful Rebbe for her, and also for just the many years in which um, we shared Tommy Dote, um, like shall have it, um, going back and forth between his shirim in various places and my summer Beit midrash. Um, I actually only met Rav Khan after Hanala had been in his chair for uh, a couple of years. Uh, he was very gracious to me. We had a couple of meetings in his office. He let me teach the advanced class a one day a year to recruit for the Sarah Bait Midrash. Uh, but my sense is he was an enormously private person. Um, what, what I want to do, and you know, since I, I never really spoke in Torah with him, what I want to do is just teach one Makor and then show you in what is really his only published English work. Uh, on why you tell this one article in Beit Yitzchak, which is a, you know, we can hope that there's a treasure trove of, of unpublished written things somewhere. I don't know. Um, or maybe this is just the the only place where he um, allowed more of his personality to be expressed in, in, in Torah other than just reading the Karot. Um, it's interesting to me, so, but I'm not saying this from any knowledge of him. Again, my my experience was just, you know, that, that he was uh, an Ish Sanua in a in a very um, in a very strong sense, um, so Yitzchok Tversky used to talk about Yosef at Safnas Panech that certain kind of, certain kind of sneers where you preserve yourself to yourself. Um, it's very interesting that he became a therapist with that uh, with that approach. Not every therapist has that. Um, so let's read. Let's read. We'll read a Chazanish at the end of the game. Um, we'll start with the Gemara and Marukal. We'll read a Chazanish and then we'll show you what Rav Khan made of it and why he made of it, and then leave you for yourself and. God willing, on other occasions, we can talk about it in more depth, and maybe we'll find out a lot more about uh, Rav Khan's private thoughts uh, if his family chooses to publish things, if there are such things. So there's a Mishnah in Moed Katan, Dav Zainam and Aleph, the Machlokas Rav Meir and the Chachamim, whether uh, whether uh, inspecting uh, Negayim, there is kinds of bodily lesions to see if a person is Tamei or Tahora, is right, they have Sarat. Um, so Rav Meir says that on Chomod, you can see them, Lahakel, Lahachmir. Some say neither lahakel or lahachmir. Um, there's a bright quoted in the Gemara, um, which which expresses what the but the issue that matters to us is that there's a Gemara quotes a Brita, which offers two two alternate um, rationales as to why we say that we would avoid declaring somebody a mitzvah if they're a chatan during the during the Shavat Yemei Hamishteh or during or, right, or during the Shalosh Regalim. 
Rabbi Huda says that based on this drasha, there are days where you look at the guy and days where you don't because you're afraid of declaring him tame. And Rebbe says, nope, there's another drasha. The drasha is going if you knew it to buy it, and emptying the house is just a parashut. So if we can delay seeing the um, inspecting the nega officially halachically to determine whether it's sarat until the house is emptied out, which is not a mitzvah purpose, um, then we can call shakalid var mitzvah. Um, okay, the Gemara asks, my Benai, what's the what's the what's the machlokus in Rebbe and the Tanakama? Um, so Abayah says there is no machlokus. They agree lahalacha, which means that um, Rebbe's assumption that we're mamtin libvarushut and therefore kol shekeli mitzvah is shared by the Chachamim, uh, whereas Rebbe says the varushut yikibenai. Rebbe says according to the first drasha, it's only something analogous to a chatan and the shivali meimishted that allows us to delay seeing the um, seeing inspecting the nega, but we wouldn't be allowed to do it for a varushut. Okay, on this, um, Chazanish at the end of the game says the um, um, relates to this in the following way. He says, We're going to start over here, right? Okay, when you have a mitzvah that does not have a defined time period in which it has to be done, um, but now it's, you're, it's, you're able to do it, um, at what point are you considered to have been mevatel v'yaseh, right? To, to have committed a violation by not fulfilling a mitzvah which you had the opportunity to fulfill. So he says, and it could be dimasnisin, it's possible to say that, but it could be this is a typo and it should be dimamtinin, which would be more parallel. Lidvar mitzvah lidvar shud, both lidvar mitzvah lidvar shud. The ik of the mandam are the ain mamtinin lidvar shud, but according to the position of the explanation of Rava, there is a mandam, right? The Tanakhama says that we do not delay, or at this point we're assuming it's a mitzvah before the Kohen to inspect the Saras for Dvarishtus, which seems to imply that if you delayed the, the mitzvah say, the Kohen delayed the mitzvah say of inspecting the Nega to see whether it's Sarat, uh, just in order to save money, um, that's why you're emptying the house, so you violate the essay. The Imkain, right, that should be generalizable, <clears throat> right? So according to at least according to this position, uh, so, right, if that's the case, so let's follow it through, right? So there's a machloket in the specific case of Re'iyat's uh, negayim, whether you're allowed to save it for Dvarashus. But the only reason that, you're, that you would be allowed to delay Re'iyat's negayim for Dvarashus, for example, to save money is because there's a special pasuk by negayim. That implies that for all other uh, mitzvah that have no defined time period, you're mevatil and say. The essay immediately after you have the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah. Okay, now he says, but we find the chalitz and yibum that that's not the case. And we have a Gemara Msachim Dafdala, which says that if you delay uh, Brit Milah, you're only, um, you're only violating the separate problem of Zrizin Makdim and the mitzvahs. You're not actually Mavatil the, the, the mitzvah itself. Okay, but he says, look, obviously Mila is distinguishable because it's Manakavua. The Torah says the eighth day. Right, so that so that's no proof. Um, that's no proof at all. Maybe there's a difference between mitzvot that have a defined time mitzvot that don't. Maybe you can have till the end of right till the end of the day. Right, maybe it's longer. Maybe it's more machmir. Um, umiu, he says, however, nira. The bechol mitzvah ain't zmanakavua. Seems to the chazanishin that all mitzvot that have no defined time period mamtin bein lidvar mitzvah uvein uvein lahevsi So he thinks that the reverse. Right, originally he made an argument that maybe negayim is the exception. Where you're allowed to wait for Dvar Shus and all other mitzvot, you can only wait for a Dvar Mitzvah and you're Mavatil the essay immediately if you don't fulfill the mitzvah, um, unless it, right, unless you're delaying it for a for, for a Dvar Mitzvah. But now he reverses that. He says, rather, it seems to me that any mitzvah that has no defined that no defined period, Mamtin Bain Lidvar Mitzvah Naman, you can delay the mitzvah for any purpose. There's no chiyah to do the mitzvah immediately. The only reason we need a special pasuk by Negaim, and maybe that's even controversial, is the Chamiri Tvei, the Chayav Aksisasuch Siv It's because Negaim has specific lotases um, arranged around it. So a bitulase is kind of like a lotase, or you might think it's kind of like a lotase in the case of Ries Negaim. So therefore, we need a special pasuk that tells you that you're allowed to delay Ries Negaim. For other uh, for purpose, for um, for non mitzvah purposes, but the default for all other mitzvot is that there is no obligation other than perhaps reason makdimin, a general obligation to do everything um, as early as possible. But the much more lenient thing, because it's not considered a violation, 
And Drizomakdimin, we know, can be uh, put off for, uh, right, for at least moderate purposes. Um, it doesn't require a formal mitzvah. Um, so maybe all other, right, so the Chazim's first principle is that Negaim is the exception. We need Psukim by Negaim because we think they were more machmir than other mitzvah, but other mitzvahs that have no defined time, there is no obligation to get them done earlier rather than later. Inami says an alternate possibility is Krash Minan, the, the Pasuk by Nagayim teaches us, it's a special Kiddush by Nagayim. You don't even have a problem of Zrizim Makdimim if you delay them. But other, other mitzvot, of course, you can delay for any purpose at all. It's just in other mitzvot, you have an issue of Zrizim, whereas in the case of, uh, of Nagayim, you, you don't even have an issue of of Zrizim, right? And he quotes a Gemara by Nadarim that says that Moshe is punished because he he bothers to um, right to arrange for lodging on the way on the way um, from uh, from Midian from Midian rather than um, doing Mila first. But the implication is that Moshe is punished because he doesn't do something beyond the mitzvah but that um, Moshe is exceptional. But really, Midian <laughs> Moshe was allowed to, to was allowed to wait. <laughs> right, so the Chazir's position right now is that <laughs> for Dvar Mitzvah or Dvar Rishos, in the case of all mitzvot other than Nagaim, you're allowed to wait. Um, what's different about Nagaim is either a Havamina, that Nagaim is more machmir, or else that Nadarim has a special kula that there isn't even issue as reason. So he says, however, right, according to this position at least, right, but there's still an issue as reason, maybe, or maybe even according to the other position, we'll say that the heter generalized from Nagaim, where the default setting is only if it's a dvar mitzvah or a dvar rishus, meaning something which at least is viewed halachically as a constructive purpose. But if you delay a mitzvah with no reason at all, it's possible that then you violate an You need at least something that rises to the level of Dvar Rishus. But then he throws in another thing. He says, right? He says, maybe, the, um, maybe even the claim that you can't put something off uh, for something that doesn't rise to Dvar Rishus, maybe even that isn't a problem if your if your intent clearly is to fulfill the mitzvah, uh, maybe he requires you to fulfill the mitzvah at a specific time. Um, and the, his example is a case where you're right where you, where you're delaying getting rid of chametz because you want to be able to burn it actually um, later. Okay, that is the chazan ish. Now, what does Rav Khan do with this chazan ish? Um, so Rav Khan's um, English article, right, really again, so far as I know, the only article on contemporary issues he published was on. Uh, um, was on birth control, and Rav Khan argued on the basis of this chazudish that uh, the outcome clearly is that a, a mitzvah, a mitzvah, a mitzvah that has no defined time, one does not violate it um, just because one hasn't fulfilled it yet, at least so long as one intends to fulfill it uh, at some time. So he argued based on this that the um, that there is no uh, there is no halachic difficulty per se in delaying having children so long as you have some constructive purpose that rises to the level of Dvar Rishus in, um, in, delaying, uh, in, de- in delaying having children. Uh, and he, right, he, he grounds that very explicitly in this, um, in this Chazanish. What's interesting is I think that his article was written uh, against an article uh, in response to an article written by Herschel Schachter many, many years before on the, uh, on the same subject. Um, We'll have to talk at some other point about the, the much bigger frame of that article, but here's where it, what here's what he um, what, what Rav Khan says in footnote 17. He says Rehearsal Schachter, an article halachic aspect of family planning in the Journal of Halachic Contemporary Society, posits that a delay in the commandment to procreate is forbidden. He bases his view on the following principles. Number one is Bye, have a nice day. The Khanish's conclusion that a delay in fulfilling a positive non-time bound commandment is viewed as a temporary cancellation of the commandment. And Rav Khan's statement on this is, well, I have deep respect for Rav Shachter. I must respectfully disagree with his reading of the Chazanish. I believe the conclusion of the Chazanish is unequivocal to permitted delay. So we've read the Chazanish together. Uh, and I think it is clear the Chazanish emerges saying that there is no per se prohibition of um, prohibition of delaying a mitzvah, uh, mitzvah say. Now, he acknowledges the possibility of delay for something that doesn't rise to the level of a uh, that that might be different. Um, although in, even in that circumstance, um, if you have intent to fulfill it later, that should be good enough. Um, but I think that on that specific narrow issue of what the Chazanish says, 
uh, it seems pretty clear that Rav Khan is correct. And you can look at Rav Schefter's article. Actually, Rav Schefter actually says it very clear. Clearly, Rav Schefter says that um, the mitzvah of Re'ez Nagayim is similar to that of, of Piri of Rivia, and that both have no biblically set time for their performance. The implication of this Gemara is clear. If not for the special verse, we would not have allowed the uh, the mitzvah. The Chazanish raises two possibilities, and the Chazanish prefers the second interpretation, which is that whenever the Torah requires us to do a mitzvah but mentions no specific time, it is understood, understood that the proper time for the mitzvah is the earliest opportunity. And only with respect to Re'ez Nagayim has the Torah made an exception. So we read it together, and uh, on this machloket, uh, it seems to be clear that uh, you know, the way we read the Chazanish, and it's the only way, I, and I read the Chazanish before um, before reading Rav Schefter's uh, or Rav Khan's article, I just looked up the Makor, because um, I knew that Rav Khan had cited it. It seems to me that that, that uh, Rav Khan is correct, uh, that the Chazanish unequivocally, as he says, states that there is no per se, um, there is no per se problem in not fulfilling an essay at the earliest uh, possible time. And according to all positions, but the, possibly the Rambam, uh, the, the mitzvah of Piri Varivia does not have a specific time by which it has to be fulfilled. Um, so I should say that like, what's really interesting about the article of Rav Khan, and that's why you know, it's really interesting if there were other articles like it, uh, is that he, the article is, talks about, this is the halachic part of the article, is, is the formal halachic part, but really the thrust of the article is to some extent an outcome of a, uh, of, of a, a um, pastoral perspective. Um, what he says is that it seems to him, therefore, that um, that the question of how long you can delay birth control, so long as you intend as you intend to have children, is not a formal halachic question. And if it's not a formal halachic question, that the job of the postgame in Rebbeim is to respect the autonomy of um, of the questioner and not to seek to and not to seek to uh, not to seek to impose uh, a to impose anything on them. So he's right. So, so he uh, spoke out against the regnant psak um, uh, for many years in the YU world. And, and, you know, and I started off my rabbinate uh, pasking that way, which was that you give people a time bound heter. You say you can have, you can use birth control for a specific period of time. Then you have to come back for another heter. Khan's article is um, very much, very much written against this, right? He says, right, that, um, that, that rabbis should restrain themselves when dealing with such issues. And they have, an interesting quote from Rivash, which we don't have time to see, which he generalizes in what uh, more of the Chiddush than usually, people usually describe being in his shir, that the, uh, the Rivash is talking about whether we force people to divorce in certain circumstances, uh, whether the Rivash says that we no longer do that, we don't interfere with marriages, maybe, right, he extends that to not interfering with the question of whether, uh, of whether people are delaying uh, procreation for reasons that we would consider uh, sufficient, right, he says we must accept the fact we cannot know the deepest motives that impel young people to turn to us for permission to delay procreation, nor are we qualified to discern the nuances such blanket terms as anxiety and marital jitters. One person's mild apprehension may be another's insurmountable emotional torment. Following Rama, it may be that we best serve our young people by granting them the opportunity to decide when they're ready for the noble task of parenthood. Perhaps what is required is less their faith in us than our faith in them. So that line, that what is required is less their faith in us than our faith in them seems to me to resonate with what all this Talmudot tell us about the nature uh, of his class. Uh, the focus on respecting autonomy, which may you know, have either motivated or been, or been influenced by his uh, psychotherapeutic training, uh, is a very powerful one. The, the closest analog I know is Rav Nachman Rabinovich speaks very much about the, the job of the post being to foster the autonomy of the questioner as opposed to, to, um, to impose their own will. Um, on the other person's decisions. And so I think that uh, it's Kadai in this Missy um, Bafra's memory to close with um, with those words that all of us can uh, be inspired for in terms of our own relationship with our Tommy Dim and Tommy Dote, that uh, perhaps what is required is less their faith in us than our faith in them. And thank you everybody for coming to this, uh, to this ASCO. It's been noted, especially in the Feshtrif, um, a similarity to the Midas of Moshe Rabbeinu, the dedication of teaching that Rabbi Khan exemplified, also his incredible humility, that was Moshe's standout point. Um, and those things, of course, I think were brought out by the Maspidim. Um, I, I, I think, you know, Shmo Goram in a way, uh, 
I don't know if he was, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was one of the writers and one of the articles says he was named for Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't know if that was a little bit of poetic liberty that she took, but there's another name, of course, which is, of course, uh, Yosef. And although that name is a secondary name and it's in a way badek, as we say in Yiddish, but clearly, as Yosef said about himself, recognizing his mission, um, it's clear that, as Rabbi Blau pointed out, that his Rabbi Khan's presence in Stern was He was the Mashpir, and he was the person who was able, in a way, to give chius, as you heard from Shalhevet and from Chanaleya and from Moritebra the chius of Limarateira, that he was there. And an Amrav indeed, an Amrav of, of intelligent, important people who had, not, who had been underserviced up until that point. So yes, it was Moshe, just like we have, we can say in this week's parasha, Gama Ish Moshe Godol Ma'od, as much as he would have abhorred hearing that perhaps for himself, but we can say it, but we could also say, I think, that he was the Yosef as well, uh, in that sense of being Machalkel and being Mashpir and, and doing it in the way that modeled for us um, what it is to be a Rebbe, what it is to be a Taira. So I want to thank everyone who was involved and uh, who dedicated their time today. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.